The Voice America Business Channel is brought to you by Intercall, the worldwide conferencing leader. Check out easy and reliable conferencing solutions at www.intercall.com forward slash radio. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you, each week I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegan, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? I want to tell you again, of course, that we do have an entry, uh, introductory offer, a special offer for first-time, one-time-only uh, trials. So you can call my assistant in New York, Claudio Bassi, uh, at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or simply go to our website at miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com to take advantage of that special one-time offer. Also, you can, uh, of course, order any of our regular subscriptions uh, over the Internet at miningstocks.com. I like to say that perhaps the best website to go to track all of the things that I'm doing, including uh, gaining access to this radio show, is going is to go to jtaylormedia.com. That's J-A-Y Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, media.com. Without the triple W's, jtaylormedia.com, you can access my radio show, all of those three newsletters that I just told you about, the uh, video interviews that I've done with a number of companies, uh, one of which we'll be talking to later today, uh, and also to pick up some of my appearances on CNBC, Fox, and BNN. I was on CNBC Asia Squawk Box last Friday, in fact, and uh, I commented on the markets and, and suggested that, uh, that really gold prices could rise infinitely because of the infinite amount of money that can and seemingly is being created by the Federal Reserve and by other central banks around the world. The reason to own gold is not to get rich, but to preserve what you have to re- preserve your wealth because the policymakers are very rapidly uh, destroying the dollar and other paper money. 
I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, it's Gold Bullion Development, Crocodile Gold, Legend Gold Mines, Calico Resources, formerly Cobre Resources, and we will be talking to the CEO of Cobre in a few minutes, Brigus Gold and Palangelo Exploration. Those are the companies that are sponsors for our first hour of today's show, and I want to thank each of them for making this show economically viable. And of course, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show. You have made it the number one show on the Voice America business channel. Um, this week uh, will be the last week of our three-hour show. We, uh, we went, first of all, started in March of 2009 with one hour. It was very popular. We increased it to two hours. Popularity continued to rise, and we went to three hours. And we're still having lots of people listening to the show, but it became just a little bit too burdensome for your, uh, for your host uh, with all of the other things that I have going on. My newsletter, videos, uh, traveling a lot, it just became a little bit too much in terms of uh, the workload. So we're going to cut back, starting next week, back to two hours uh, again. And, uh, well, that, uh, the challenge for me will be to find enough time for our main guests uh, to be able to talk about everything they need to, to say or everything I'd like them to say. Next week, our main guest will be Sean Broderick. He's been with us before. Sean is very, uh, is very much on the inflation side of things, and uh, not surprisingly then, he's extremely bullish on silver. So he's going to talk about silver, and I'm sure he's going to give us his views on the economy in general. Um, he is, as I say, very much an inflationist, and uh, I might – and, and, a, and a silver bull. Um, it is important to note that as the system expands in silver, as the uh, credit system expands or as the uh, inflation trade expands, silver usually outperforms gold. Bob Hoy, the work of Bob Hoy is suggesting now, however, that silver is likely to take a breather vis-a-vis -vis gold. Uh, and when that happens, a lot of times you might also look for a pullback in the equity markets and in the commodity markets. And indeed, today we are seeing exactly that with the Dow down over 100 points, uh, gold and silver off fairly significantly as well as oil. All of the inflation play at least taking a breather for today. Is it going to be something more than just a temporary breather? We'll have to wait and find out. Nobody knows for sure, but we certainly have people with opinions and ideas on this show. And we are going to be talking uh, a little bit later to John Williams. He certainly is not buying the deflation side of, uh, of, of the argument and you know, which way will this massive credit debacle work its way out. Uh, the, uh, the mess that we've gotten ourselves in thanks to John Maynard Keynes and the theories that we have followed that have been so popular on the part of politicians and everybody looking for a handout, everybody looking for something for free. Uh, John Maynard Keynes provided the economic framework for that to take place at least politically. Uh, John is not, as I say, not worried about um, uh, levels of, uh, he, he really firmly believes that we are, John Williams, my main guest today, really firmly believes that we are headed for hyperinflation. Uh, John has made the point in the past that not even if we uh, took 100% of, uh, of our expenses, if we taxed people 100% of their incomes, would it be enough to make good on all of the obligations that the government uh, has for, uh, for us um, and what it's promised for us going forward in the future? Uh, well, I hope and pray that John Williams is wrong about hyperinflation because I think that is absolutely the worst scenario. Better that we had a deflationary depression as in the 1930s would be much, much better for a whole host of reasons. But if John is right, then we want to be prepared as best we can. 
and largely in sync with John Williams' ideas are the views of Doug Casey. At about 3.30 today, Eastern Time, New York Time, I will be playing a speech by Doug Casey that he gave in Cafijate, Argentina on March 25th, and that was a, uh, a meeting that I attended and one I uh, heard and listened to Doug. Uh, Doug discusses the, uh, the trends in the world and why it may make good sense for people who are financially capable to consider diversifying their assets geographically and also for them to look for a place to go uh, in the event that social disorder breaks out. And if we have, let's hope and pray not, but if we do have the kind of scenario that John Williams is pointing towards, then I think it would not be a stretch of the imagination to, to suggest that we might have some very nasty things going on in the way of social order and breakdown of that sort of thing. Not, none of this do we hope and hope or wish for in any way, but just trying to look at the landscape and trying to see what could come so we're best prepared as possible for those kinds of outcomes. If we have something more moderate, uh, let's hope that's the case, uh, we may be able to continue living our lives more or less as we have. Uh, and, and certainly we don't want to stake everything we have on, on the extremes. We're going to have Dr. John Mark Stoudy also with us today. Uh, he's going to talk a little bit about the economic factors that you need to look at when you look at junior mining companies. And speaking of junior mining companies today, I will be talking to three of them. In just a few minutes, I'm going to talk to William Wegener. He is the president and CEO of Calico Resources. Uh, and in the third hour, Lawrence Page of Southern Silver will be with us, as will Alan Shefsky of Pele Mountain Resources. So those are three junior mining companies. Uh, Shefsky's company is more in the rare earths. The other two are focused more on the precious metals. And finally, to close off today's show, I will be talking to Ted Ohashi, uh, a, an analyst out of Vancouver who will talk about the gold markets and perhaps give us some ideas about some mining companies that he thinks uh, would be good to take a look at. Well, before we go to our commercial break and before we uh, talk to Mr. Wagner, I just want to pass on some of the ideas that Roger Wiegand and Chen uh, passed on to me earlier today, neither of which will be on the show today. Roger is looking for uh, gold to base at around 1450 and then move up to 1509. That's his upside, his near-term upside target. Roger thinks that we are seeing nothing more than a, a correction here. I don't think he believes this is anything very serious on the downside at this point in time. Uh, Chen Lin is becoming somewhat more concerned about the markets right now. Chen, uh, I should mention that Roger also voiced concerns about rising fuel prices and what that's doing to the trucking industry. A lot of long-range long freight is being hauled now by rail rather than truck. Uh, by trucking because of the diesel costs, uh, diesel fuel has gone up over $4, and that's really uh, leading to an increase in the rail traffic. Uh, Chen Lin has really been troubled and worried about rising fuel costs, and he's been pretty bullish on oil all along. He'd rather see oil below $70. Let me just read very quickly. Uh, what Chen wrote to his subscribers today, quote, the market is quickly turning worse after yesterday's big reversal. I welcome the big drop in oil and hope it gets below 100. Uh, that will be very beneficial to the economy. I think the lower oil prices would help stock markets in general, especially mining stocks, because they are big energy consumers. As I mentioned many times, I always love corrections because in time of corrections, opportunities are easy to come by. In a roaring bull market, it is very hard to chase small cap stocks. In time of correction, you can buy all you want, as many as you want. All you need to do is not, uh, is not get into a panic. Do not get personal with some particular stock that could dig a big hole 
uh, into your portfolio. Have a diverse portfolio and some liquidity at hand, and that will help greatly. Well, those are the words of Chen Lin, who has been a stock picker extraordinaire. And again, you can take advantage of Chen Lin's uh, work by going to uh, calling my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Catch up with Chen, Roger, or myself go to mining stocks as well to take advantage of that. Well, that's uh, all the time we have for the first segment. We're going to go to a break now, and as soon as we come back, we'll be with Bill Wagner. He's the president and CEO of a very interesting gold and silver exploration company. Don't go away. We'll be right back. business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, InMet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Great Panther Silver is a profitable primary silver producer trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol GPR. GPR operates two 100% owned mines in Mexico, has a solid track record of increasing production, and continues to add resources and reserves. GPR has developed an organic growth strategy that will see production increase by more than 65% over the next two years. Great Panther Silver is also generating excitement at its new discovery in Guanajuato and expanding its drill program. Look for GPR on the TSX. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love and ride. 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me William Wagoner. He's the president and CEO of Calico Resource Corp., uh, previously known as Cobre Resources. Calico trades uh, on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol CKB, and you can buy it in the United States uh, in the over-the-counter market under the symbol CVXHF, CVXHF. Only 18.7 million shares outstanding. The stock is actually trading up today, two cents on a on a pretty horrible day. Generally, the Dow being down nearly about 100 points, and gold and silver and oil and everything trading down. Somehow, Calico is up two cents to 50 cents. But this gives this company a market cap of only about nine million dollars, which is minuscule, minuscule market cap. Um, and so we're uh, really going to try to find out here. Uh, if there isn't an opportunity, maybe for investors who uh, can understand what's going on. So to help us understand the prospects, welcome, William. Really great to have you with me. Well, thank you, Jay. I appreciate you having me on your show. Uh, it's really interesting. You know, I like to say that the junior resource market is not an efficient market. It's not the market where, you know, instantly everybody in the market understands and knows what's going on with these companies and factors it into the price. And I like that because it means that if you are an alert investor and you can find value when the market has not yet discovered it, then you have a chance to make a lot of money. And as I look at this now without knowing a whole heck of a lot about your company, uh, I'm saying this is attractive just in the basis of price. But I also know that one of the most, not one of the, the most important factor for any company is its management. So before I even get into any of the questions about your properties, can you just talk to us a little bit about the management team at Calico? Why, certainly, Jay. Yeah, I think one of the key things with Calico, uh, aside from the project, is, is the management. Um, Calico reunites a management team uh, in the persons of Buck Morrill, Vance Thornsbury and myself. Uh, Vance and Buck and I have worked together before uh, quite successfully. Uh, we had a very good run at Northland Resources when we did the iron ore projects in uh, North Sweden and Finland. Uh, those projects are now being built by the, uh, the team we hired to take our place. So I think you know, that's demonstrated success. We also have careers prior to Northland that, that are full of success. And uh, and we're just happy to be working together again, and I think that's a key thing when you've got a team that knows each other, likes each other, and uh, uh, is comfortable with each other, I think success comes, comes, comes nicely. Yeah, and I think you might add another ingredient there, and that is competence and uh, a proven track record. Those are also important. You know, you want to ride the jockey that has a successful track record. So uh, I think that's, that's very worth noting. Okay, so let's, let's just talk a little bit about your... Uh, your business model. Is this a company that is an exploration company or are you going to be a producer? Could you just explain to our listeners what the business model of uh, Calico is? Well, we're, we're very much an exploration company now. Um, do we intend to move towards production? Certainly. But in the near term, we're an exploration company. You know, we're looking to acquire kind of a, a, the full pipeline of projects 
but, but we focused on one that, that had a lot of exploration equity in it that you can see somewhere, you can see in the near-term horizon the potential for development. And, and that, was, that was the model. We, we, we want the full suite of projects, but we wanted something that had a lot of exploration equity, and, and, and I believe we found it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's talk about it then. What would you consider? I know that Iron Lake is a property that you've had, uh, but if I'm if I'm understanding, uh, before we went on the air, you're talking about Grassy Mountain. There's a Grassy Mountain property that you have a letter of intent of acquiring uh, from Seabridge Gold. Could you talk to us about that? Is that is that would you consider that your flagship property? Yes, that that will be our flagship property. Uh, we signed that letter of intent in February. Um, it allows us to acquire a 100% interest, obviously subject to certain royalties, in the Grassy Mountain projects, and that is in that is located in eastern Idaho or east sorry eastern Oregon uh, in Malheur County. It's about 70 miles west of, uh, of Boise, Idaho. Mm-hmm. So we, we are in the process now of, of finalizing the definitive agreement. We're very close on that. I uh, would expect to uh, to uh, get that done here in the next several days or so, uh, but but we're really excited about this project for a number of reasons. One is is really the historic work that's embedded in this property. There's over 400 hole drill holes on this property, Jay. Um, 192 of them were put into the primary Grassy Mountain target. And the rest were put into satellite deposits around, so it's it's not just a single potential uh, deposit, single potential resource. There is a number of satellites around, which I'll talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yes, and it, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm happy to carry on if you like. I mean, the the important thing for us was there was a, a prior uh, NI43101 report done on the property that. Uh, indicated that there were open pit resources in the indicated carry category of over 900,000 ounces. So I, I think that's pretty significant. When you come stack that up against the, the market capitalization of the company, it looks like a disconnect to us. Well, certainly that provi- would, would seem to provide some sort of a foundation uh, and, and uh, probably reduce the downside risk. Uh, for those that buy the stock at, at these levels. But let me ask you, 900,000 ounces, what sort of grade are we talking about? Uh, the, the average, it was averaging 1.54 grams per ton at a 0. Mm-hmm. 0.55 cutoff. Mm-hmm. So that was, well, that, there was, was on ton- the, that was on the uh, uh, open pit resources. But there was a, a non-43-101 compliant report uh, done by Kilbourne Engineering that is of interest to us as well. And that indicated a high-grade underground resource of a little over 400,000 ounces. Um, and that graded in, in situ 9.1 grams per ton. Mm. And so mm. we're, we're very excited about that high-grade uh, underground potential. Any sense of, the, uh, of what mining widths might be if you ever got to that point on the 400,000 high-grade ounces? Um, I can say that uh, we see a, a, a number of very, very contiguous mineralization, um, particularly in the high grade, uh, where you see 15, 20 feet, you know, 30 feet. So it, it, it's going to be, it, it's going to be quite mineable. Okay, very interesting. So, but you also have, uh, you said 400, 192 drill holes in the main area. Uh, and that, I guess, is where that 900,000 ounces come from? 
that is that is that is correct. That is correct. So so there is some lateral uh, possibilities of expanding, or are there other pits, potential pits, or is it one contiguous uh, 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 mineralized area? No, there, there's both actually. Um, the the nice thing about the identified resource is that that it's open uh, to the west, and it's open uh, a long strike into the west. So, you know, it, there is quite a quite an opportunity to, inc- to increase the grassy mountain core resource itself in, in, in more ways than one. Let me talk about that for a second. Um, so it's, it's open along, along the strike into the west, but there was also a, quite a number of, uh, of samples that were capped at one ounce per ton, and there were 67 of them to be ex- exact. And, and, but these capped uh, uh, samples range from 1.1 ounce per ton up to a high of 21 ounces per ton. Mm. And, and wow. there's some serious intervals there, you know, anywhere from 15, um, say, say kind of averaging around 15 feet or more in excess of two and a half ounces. So we see a lot of opportunity to increase the resource itself along strike and uh, to the west and to, to include some of these capped uh, results. Okay, well, that all sounds very good, the geology and the exploration potential. And I know a management team like yours would not get involved in a project unless you thought it had some real chance to, to be advanced towards production and ultimately into production. But let me ask you this. When I think about Oregon, I think about Washington, I think about California, I think about some of those states that have been really uh, – they have a reputation at least for being difficult uh, with respect to environmental regulation. What are your thoughts with respect to our Oregon and environmental issues? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. It's certainly one we asked ourselves up front. Um, we went in and did an investigation, uh, used a third party to go in there, evaluate the Oregon uh, rules and regulations. And what we have found is they're no different now than Arizona, Nevada, Idaho. Fundamentally, they say you cannot degrade the surface waters of the state and you cannot degrade the under the, the, the deep water. So, you know, we don't see any difference between these now. Um, I think at the time when uh, the work was done on uh, uh, Grassy Mountain in the 90s, the gold price was low and, and, and the other states had, had more lenient jur- jurisdictions and more lenient rules and regulations. Now they're all synchronized, so we don't see any difference. Oh, that's, uh, it really is, uh, it's certainly also at a time when America needs jobs very, very badly. And, uh, you know, when you have a $1,400 gold price, it certainly does make things change very, very drastically, doesn't it? Um, let, let me ask you just quickly, we, we're really basically out of, out of time here, but I want to ask you, you also have the Iron Lake property. Could you just spend a minute maybe to tell our listeners about the Iron Lake property? Sure. That, that, is, that is the property. It's up in British Columbia that uh, was our graduation property. Uh, there's been a, a fair amount of work done on it, but it really needs some drill holes to take it to the next step, and we're in the process of planning that right now. Um, our priority is going to be Grassy Mountain, I will have to say, but uh, we do intend to uh, get in there and do some exploration uh, this summer uh, up at uh, Iron Lake. Okay, let me ask you one final question. Uh, what about cash resources at this time? Do you have some money in the till to carry out a drill program, or are you going to have to raise more capital sometime soon? Yes, well, we're debt-free right now, and we do have some money in the till. We have a little over a million dollars. However, that's not enough to do what we really want to do. Uh, so we're going to be out looking for a financing. Uh, however, 
you know, we're going to, to gauge the size of that financing based on the, uh, on the market's response and, and the price and the share price. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly uh, you have 900,000 ounce resource to start with, a 43-101, I might add. Uh, a management team that's been very, very successful, a market cap that's under $10 million. Certainly something that I'm going to want to take a closer look at for my readers, William, and thank you so much for being with us uh, this, uh, this week, and I hope we can have you back sometime to update our listeners in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jay. Folks, don't go away. Coming up next is John Williams. If you're worried about inflation, hyperinflation even, uh, you're not going to want to miss John Williams. Uh, John will be with us right after the break. Don't go away. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Great Panther Silver is a profitable primary silver producer trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol GPR. GPR operates two 100% owned mines in Mexico, has a solid track record of increasing production, and continues to add resources and reserves. GPR has developed an organic growth strategy that will see production increase by more than 65% over the next two years. Great Panther Silver is also generating excitement at its new discovery in Guanajuato and expanding its drill program. Look for GPR on the TSX. North Atlantic Resources is a gold exploration company with three projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries made this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our premier FT project to development. We have a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold, with a target to increase to over 1 million ounces. North Atlantic trades under the symbol NAC on the TSX Venture Exchange. Learn more about NAC. Go to our website at www.nac.com. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
human race Some kind of love and rhyme I'll be sliding down I'll be gliding down Try not to try too hard It's just a love and rhyme You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I am really pleased to have with me economist John Williams, who's been on this show before. John, uh, uh, John is, uh, is well known for his work uh, with shadow government statistics. Uh, he has uh, been writing his newsletter for a number of years. I met up with John probably more than 10 years ago at some point in time at a conference and uh, was very impressed uh, with his view of the world. John is independent in that uh, meaning that he works for himself, and that means that he doesn't have to please uh, the sales unit of, of some brokerage house or some investment bank in terms of trying to sell paper uh, to people that uh, might be suspect. So, John Williams, um, just to give you a little bit of a background here, if I've got John's bio, um, he was Born in 1949, so John, you're more or less my age. Uh, he received uh, a degree in economics, uh, cum laude, from uh, Dartmouth College in 1971. He was awarded an MBA from Dartmouth's Amos Tuck School of Business Administration in 1972, where he was named an Edward Tuck Scholar. During his career as a counseling economist, as a consulting economist, John has worked with individuals as well as Fortune 500 companies. For more than 25 years, John has been a private consulting economist, as I just mentioned. Out of necessity, he became a specialist in government economic reporting. He learned that virtually all economic stats quoted by the U.S. government are spun using optimistic assumptions that often bear little reality but make politicians look good and put money in the pockets of Wall Street. John writes the Shadow Government Statistics newsletter, and his work has been recognized by the mainstream media, where he has been quoted in publications like the New York Times and Investors Business Daily. And I might add that we just interviewed Ron Paul, I believe it was last week, and Ron, I know, follows the work of John Williams and uh, respects his work very greatly, as do a lot of independent people. John, I want to welcome you again to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you for having me, Jay. John, I want to thank you especially. It seems like whenever I get you on the show, you have a cold or something. It's just just, just my luck, I guess. We had you on to discuss uh, with Bob Hoy some time ago. Uh, you took the inflation side of uh, the inflation-deflation argument, and Bob Hoy took the deflation side. And, you know, I think what the commonality is, there's a recognition among a lot of people that, that things that the economy is sick, that it's been mismanaged, that we have uh, you know enormous amounts of money that's been pumped into the system, we have debt uh, that cannot be repaid uh, with anything like the dollars that we have even now, the debased dollars that we have even now. So there is sort of a, a, a mutual a, a sort of a mutual understanding of the cause of the problem, how it gets resolved, whether through the fires of hyperinflation or through some kind of deflationary. De- 
depression is the is the open topic and it's a topic that we that we uh, we discuss frequently on this show we've had Robert Prechter, Ian Gordon, uh, Bob Hoy, uh, Miss Shedlack, a bunch of people that are on the deflation side and then we have yourself and Ron Paul and uh, uh, Mark Faber uh, we've had those many different people on your side of the uh, of the argument as well so uh, I, I want to start out by asking you you have now started to publish an annual hyperinflation special report and your 2011 report was just put out on March 15th um, give us an overview if you would tell us uh, is are you pretty much on track now I mean I, I can remember reading this report going back a couple of years ago and you were suggesting as early as the late latter part of 2010 we could start to see a whiff of hyperinflation now here we are in the early parts of 2011 indeed we are seeing inflation tick up and we're seeing even using the government's numbers and we're seeing the UK for example talk about four percent inflation uh, talk to the US numbers what is our inflation rate now the official inflation rate and what do you see it as being if we use the same accounting measure as we used a number of years ago well as it's being reported uh, um, and we'll get a new number on on Friday uh, the CPI uh, showing annual inflation right now of 2.1 percent which normally would not be much to worry about I mean that's within the Fed's target range supposedly <laughs> Excuse me, but the uh, uh, what's happened over the last uh, several decades is that the government deliberately has altered its reporting methodologies on the consumer price index so as to reduce the level of reported inflation. Uh, Alan Greenspan talked about this back in the uh, uh, early '90s, he, and and you'll even hear Mr. Bernanke today saying, "Oh, the." CPI overstates inflation. Greenspan said the same thing back in the in the 90s, and he'd ask him why, and he said, "Well, the uh, what, what what happens is if steak gets uh, too expensive, people tend to buy more hamburger, and then their cost of living's lower. That's <laughs> not reflected in the CPI. Well, it, it shouldn't be, at least in terms of what was uh, originally intended for the CPI. What most people think they're getting with the CPI and the way most people look to use the CPI. If you, if you want an accurate measure of inflation, uh, you're looking at it generally versus your income or investments. How much does my income have to increase by? Or how much do I have to make on my investments to, to stay ahead of inflation or at least maintain a constant standard of living? And it's a concept of... Uh, the CPI is a measure of the cost of living of maintaining a constant standard of living, which was the basis for all the uh, early auto union contracts with the CPI, uh, putting in the CPI as a cost of living adjustment for Social Security and such. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, What Greenspan tried to do, and, and effectively uh, succeeded in doing, along with Michael Boskin and uh, although it hasn't gone all the way yet, is that they've uh, changed the nature of the CPI so that it no longer measures the um, inflation, uh, the, the cost of living needed to maintain a constant standard of living. They've mm -hmm. moved it from a fixed basket of goods where they measure, say, a, a, a pound of uh, steak, a, a gallon of milk, a gallon of gasoline one year, and then they take that 
same basket of goods and measure that same basket the next year, however much that basket changed in price, that was your inflation. That's how much you had to have an added income or such in order to, to, to keep things even. They've moved it away from that to a substitution-based, uh, and that's, it's not fully that. It's, it's really uh, a combination of factors as they've made a variety of changes uh, to it. They have what they call an experimental CPI called the chain-weighted CPI, um, and that is the, uh, uh, the the president's deficit commission suggested that should be used for cost of living adjustments. The whole purpose of this exercise was to reduce cost of living adjustments for Social Security. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that was a way mm-hmm. of reducing uh, the go- the government's uh, expenditures, helping to contain the deficit, helping to cut Social Security costs without any uh, miscreant in, in, in Congress having to uh, do the unthinkable of voting against Social Security. And I use the term miscreant not loosely here because... Uh, most of what's happened here has been uh, the result of uh, very bad actions uh, by people in our government over the over the decades on both sides of the aisle. Um, but the, the the effect is that if you look at it the way it was intended, a way of um, measuring a cost of living uh, for maintaining a constant standard of living, you'd find that instead of having the CPI at uh, 2.1 percent, that you're up around 9 percent. Is that right? So that would be what if we if we measured it the same way, what as uh, as we did pre pre Ronald Reagan, we'd yeah. be looking at nine percent. Basically, that's the it's it's an estimate. I, I I don't recalculate it. What I do is I take the Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates of their methodological changes and the effect they've had on the CPI. How much uh, you know, changing a certain weighting or putting in a hedonic adjustment, which has effectively the same. Um, the, the same effect, um, uh, how much that has reduced the CPI by. I just add that back in as an add factor. So it's it's an approximation. <clears throat> well, this is really going to reduce the amount of money that government pays out in Social Security. If we're talking about a, a real 9% inflation rate as opposed to 2.1%, add to that the fact that the demographics are really starting to explode now in terms of the uh, Social Security recipients and Medicare recipients and so forth. Uh, this is absolutely huge, this 9% versus 2.1%. What does that amount to in well, terms of... The, the effect what, has been that uh, had the changes not been made that they started with in 1990, and I've gone back through 1980 here, 19, just 1990 on the changes are such that uh, Social Security checks would be about twice... Uh, what they are today had the changes not been made so that the original goal of reducing the Social Security payments uh, has has worked. But that's that's not why we're facing a hyperinflation. I mean, all I'm saying is that inflation generally is running higher than most people uh, hear, than people hear from the government. Most people understand that. Uh, I, I don't find too many people who think that the government is uh, overstating inflation. It's usually the other way around. And the reason for the common ex- the, the the difference here in the common experience is because the the methodologies have been changed, and indeed the series no longer reports inflation the way people used to uh, think it was, um, the way it actually was reported, the way many people still think it is reported.
Mm. Well, I've got to tell you that as I, I'm listening to you talk about this, I'm realizing uh, that you know I have a mother uh, who's 87 and realizing that she's not getting what she deserves, what she was promised anyway. And then not only that, John, but I'm looking at interest rates that are near zero. So people like my mother who save money live frugally all their lives. You know, they were children of the Great Depression. They had reverence for value. They wanted to be careful about how they spent their money. They saved their money. They lived frugally. And they are getting next to nothing on their savings. So now they're getting screwed two ways. Yep. One, they're getting taken through these uh, through the contrived CPI numbers and they're getting taken to the cleaner by Mr. Bernanke with his forced interest rates at such low levels. Now I know this is off topic with respect to hyperinflation, but I believe one of the issues that you're concerned about is the inability of the government to fund what it's promising to pay people when they, you know, when they're old, when they, yep. you know, and and so and so I I remember in talking to you before, you were concerned that not even if 100% of our incomes were taxed, it would not be sufficient to meet the obligations of the United States government. Didn't you say that at one point? That's right, and that's still the case. Okay, um, so now look. Let, 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 so, so I mean, to what extent is this 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 phony CPI number of 2.1% versus 9%? To what to what extent is that helping the government balance its books? Not enough. Far not enough. Far from being enough, the um, I, I look at uh, uh, generally. I, I try to come up with realistic uh, estimates of what's going on, and the government actually has, uh, uh, actually, although it was forced uh, to do so by uh, Congress. Uh, well, that's part of the government talking the the uh, executive branch mm -hmm. um, has been forced to start reporting the government's operations on a. Um, on a gap accounting basis using generally accepted accounting principles. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it as reported there, with accounting for uh, the year-to-year -year change in the debt present value of the unfunded liability, Social Security, Medicare, um, cruel accounting, the way a, a company would do its, a major corporation would do its books, you're, you're seeing annual deficits in the 4 to $5 trillion range. And uh, it's only the last year or so you've been up in the over a trillion in terms of what they've been reporting on a cash basis. I mean that's how, mm -hmm. that's a, that's a separate issue. But at four to five trillion, uh, that's beyond sustainability. It's beyond containment. Uh, they can't raise taxes enough to bring it into balance, and they could cut every penny of government spending except for Social Security and Medicare, and they'd still be in deficit. Mm -hmm. It's 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 the the, com the, the country long term. Is bankrupt. It does not have the ability to cover its obligations, mm -hmm. um, and there, most countries uh, faced with that type of circumstance uh, usually rev up the printing presses, currency printing presses, use that to um, uh, pay off their obligations, which creates an inflation, a hyperinflation, and going back some years, say back to the mid two thousands. I would have been uh, telling you that we had a hyperinflation coming by 2018, 2019. Uh, but the, the economy also is in a structural, structural change, which hit hard in 2006, drove the uh, uh, drove the mortgage market into uh, 
uh, turmoil and as the financial crisis broke and as the Fed and the federal government responded to really what was a threat to a threat of systemic collapse. They did everything they had to, uh, they created whatever money, they spent whatever money they, they had to spend, made whatever guarantees they had to make in order to keep the system from collapsing. And in, do, in doing so, they did prevent um, a, a broad collapse. I can't say it's gotten much better. You still have uh, a systemic solvency problem with the bank's economy. Uh, still is not in uh, real recovery. I contend it's actually getting worse again. You're going to see a double, double dip recession here. Um, but the, the the cost of what they did to save the system, uh, it was inflation. Uh, and as the system has gotten worse, and they've had further panics, and the Fed has moved to quantitative easing. Uh, you've seen the rest of the world saying, okay, we've been patient here for a year or two. We're not going to take any more of this. What you're doing is uh, uh, so so bad. We're, we, we see you getting uh, becoming insolvent. The dollar is going to become worthless. Major in dollar investors, uh, I'm talking sovereign investors, have uh, started uh, uh, pulling out. You've seen major selling pressure against the dollar. And as the Fed introduced its quantitative easing aimed deliberately at debasing the U.S. dollar, creating inflation. They had the desired effect, even though the money supply, um, the, the, the broadest measure, M3, I still track it, although it's not showing any significant uh, growth at the moment. That, 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 that will be coming down, down the road, but the, uh, you're dealing with the world's reserve currency here, and as the dollar gets debased, and, and you've, see, you've seen the, the heavy selling pressure. A direct response to that is a higher oil price. As oil prices rise, that becomes very inflationary in U.S. dollar terms. The reason we're going to see a, a bad inflation number on Friday, the reason we saw one last time was, was due to spikes in gasoline prices, which in turn have been, turn have been uh, flowing through in the transportation costs. You're seeing it in the food industry. We're seeing an inflation here. Uh, pick up an inflation that's been created by the, uh, uh, the Fed's efforts to debase the dollar. They're mm-hmm. accelerating the process. <clears throat> Everything going right. forward here in terms of the budget deficit, in terms of uh, the banking solvency, uh, everything there assumes positive economic growth going forward. We're not going to have that. Deficit's going to get worse. The Fed's going to have to continue easing. They're, they're going to have to continue monetizing the the uh, treasuries, which they're doing now, and that becomes very inflationary, hyperinflationary. We're beginning well, to I... see the early stages of the hyperinflation. As as as, as we talk, we're, the, we're seeing a little pickups. Nothing that would scare anyone too much, but uh, you're going to be over three percent inflation. Uh, the CPI next month, uh, next six six months down the road, you're probably going to be over six seven percent. And that's using the government's percent. numbers starts to pick up, becomes self-feeding. The Fed doesn't have a way out of this. And so what they've done is they've accelerated the process, and the risk is very high that we're going to see hyperinflation break um, in the year ahead, and that we're beginning to see the early stages of it um, right now. So would you say 2012, John, when, when this thing really accelerates or towards the end of this year, you'd say? Well, I give it an outside uh, timing of 2014. Um, 
but uh, I, I would say you know you're certainly uh, um, you're getting into 2012. It's going to be a very uncomfortable environment. Well, what about the argument that Ben Bernanke makes that uh, you know you can always cut back the money supply, you can always rein in the money supply, but you can't. But it's very difficult when you have deflation to get people to start spending again. What about that argument? Well, it's uh, he, he's he, he's assuming that you can only have uh, economic growth and inflation or non-economic growth and, I mean, no economic growth and, and no inflation. You can have inflation and uh, a contracting economy. That's what we have right now. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's what we had back in uh, the 70s with the oil crisis. And we have a situation now where you're seeing oil prices spike. That's not because of, of strong economic demand. My goodness, I heard on the a national uh, news program last night. Oh, gasoline prices are rising because of the economic recovery. What what nonsense? <laughs> gasoline prices are rising because the Fed has been debasing the dollar. The Fed's behind the current rise in gasoline prices, but nobody wants to talk about it. The Fed wants to get inflation up there, but then it says inflation's contained because it doesn't look at core inflation, or it only looks at core inflation, which takes out the food and energy, which is what's spiking. I'm yeah. sorry, my voice is beginning to... to, to, to yeah, I understand, John, and I'll try to get you a break. We only have a, a three or four minutes left to go here, so uh, let me try to carry the ball a little bit if I can for you, uh, and, and maybe uh, you get a sip of water or so until you can get out of this uncomfortable situation. I want to thank you again for coming on. I know it's difficult for you. I have to ask you about this uh, this issue of psychology. It seems to me, if we look at, and I know you've talked about the Weimar Republic and Zimbabwe, every situation is somewhat different. But one of the things I notice when I look at inflation rates, you see it starting off very gradually, and then all of a sudden it gains speed, and um, you, you start to see an exponential rise in prices. At some point, there's a loss of confidence in the currency, and velocity picks up, right? Because yep. people say, gosh, I can't sit here with these dollars any longer because they're going to become worthless tomorrow. I won't be able to buy anything with them. And people go out and they buy whatever they can, tangible assets they can buy right. now for fear, and it's all about fear. So is it possible? Well, it's not just fear. I mean, it's actually quite rational. If you yeah. can't, uh, you mentioned the low interest rates. If if you can't uh, make enough on your money to cover inflation, you do better do better uh, to go out and buy the goods that are going to become inflated, and that's that's a better investment for you than buying a treasury bill. Right, and right. Uh, that's what's beginning to happen. I and mean, yes, you're you're right. There will be there will become an inflection point. You start to see uh, an accelerating process here. I think we're beginning to see the acceleration. Give it another couple of months, but I I, I think you'll uh, you'll start to well, see some. Uh, uh, some inflation, some acceleration of the process, and, and increasing concerns. Now, I, I've had people say, "Oh my goodness, how yeah, you can cut, uh, you can always cut inflation by doing what Paul Volcker did." Well, he drove the economy into the ground. He had worst recession since the Great Depression up to that point in time. He mm-hmm. rose interest rates, and he raised interest rates to high level, crashing the economy to bring down inflation, and it didn't work too well, but it did. It did, uh, it did bring it down in certain areas. Um, I, I can't see Bernanke crashing the economy when we're already in uh, the deepest and longest downturn since the Great Depression. 
How's he going to How's he going to bring it under control? He can't. Well, I think you would argue that we're in much, much, much worse shape than we were back then, and that the contraction would be far greater. Uh, would you say now, if the same kind of remedy were prescribed, he can't do it. He can't I mean, do it. We're, we're, they've They've made this. They made the decision in 2008 not to allow a um, collapse in the system. Well, John, when I look at nine percent real inflation rate rather than the fictitious 2.1 that they're telling us. And I'm looking at interest rates that are virtually zero or 1% tops. If you go 2%, maybe if you go out 30 years or, or 10 years or whatever. Uh, it's ridiculous. Why would it, the most irrational thing in the world would be to buy treasuries, it seems now. And certainly, if someone as smart as Bill Gross is saying, I'm completely out, not only is Mr. Gross out of treasuries, but apparently had a, a short position on treasuries, from what I understand. Uh, I don't know what the government's thinking. I guess they're figuring there's a lot of people that are being suckered into believing what they're hearing on CNBC every day. I mean, wh wh how would any rational person stick around with treasuries right now? And what would you do? I guess gold, silver, tangibles. My, we're going to have Doug Casey talking a little later in the hour about buying land in, in uh, Argentina, Café Jate, Argentina, where I went a couple of weeks ago. What would you suggest, and I'll let you go, John, because I know you're suffering tremendously. Basic... basic uh the basic hedge here is uh, gold and silver. Gold I view as a primary physical gold, uh, and getting outside the uh, U.S. dollar. I, I like in particular the uh, uh, Canadian dollar, Swiss franc, Australian dollar. Um, those are all currencies that have been hitting recent historic highs. Against okay, John. The uh, okay, very good, John. I'm, I want to get you back on sometime when your voice is, is good and strong and when you might be able to give us a little more time because what you have to say is very, very valuable for our listeners uh, and for me. And uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on today to talk to us uh, at a time when, you've, uh, when it's been a struggle for you. It's greatly appreciated, John. Thank you for your good work. Uh, just tell people where they can subscribe, though, before I let you go. Shadow Government Statistics, well, I guess they can go. Sh Shadow Stats. Dot com. Shadowstats.com. Excellent newsletter, folks. I subscribe to it. It's, uh, it's, it's must-reading if you care about what's really going on, not what they're telling you is going on, not what you hear on the mainstream propaganda shows on CNBC and elsewhere, but what is really going on. John Williams' shadow government statistics will help you understand. So you, you should really look into subscribing to his service. Thanks again, John. You're folks, uh, don't go away. Uh, John just mentioned gold silver. We talk about gold mining on this show a lot. We had a couple of sponsors. Uh, we'll have a couple more talking later. But to help you understand how best uh, and what the issues are when you buy gold mining stocks, we've had Dr. John Mark Stoudy with us. And Dr. Stoudy is going to be with us right after the break to explain mining economics, the economics of gold and silver mining. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. John Mark Stoudy. Mm -hmm. 